talk tonight about this path as a path of purification. It's one of the notes that was put in the bowl is what do we mean by purifying? So I'd like to give a little uh, context around that um, and then talk about uh, something you're probably already noticing, but if we point it out, it becomes more uh, more obvious uh, why there are so many ups and downs in practice. So in truth, we are in a stream of experiences. Externally, everything is in its changing nature, either slowly changing or quickly changing. Internally, there are slow changes, there are quick changes. But besides this term Nibbana, which we might talk about at some point, almost all of our experience, you might as well say all of our experience, is of uh, immediate experiences that are changing, either subtly or quickly. And it's because we're not that intimate with the world that it appears to us as if it's static. And then we try to take refuge in that view and and how we are perceiving that there are static things that you could take refuge in. But because we're actually in a liquid universe, that strategy keeps betraying us. But if you can't see that that's what's happening, you can't think outside the box of there being uh, things you could take refuge in if you think things are permanent. And this is a shift in view. We are actually all the while in a stream but we are perceiving ourselves as if we are on land. And because of that misperception, we're not actually uh, choosing wisely. And the way that we choose actually leads us to frustration. So a lot of the practice is to build up steady intimacy so that you don't have to adopt a different opinion, but just through... uh, heightened intimacy, the truth becomes self-evident, how much change there's going on. And that's why I'm so happy that uh, all of you are on a one-month retreat um, and maybe a two-month retreat because it takes a long time for that intimacy to develop to where that is your submerged experience. And so that becomes second nature to live on a waterbed world that's constantly shifting, but not looking for where is the stability. Intrinsically, I I miss the stability. I'm longing for stability. Stability in my mind, stability in my body, stability in the outside world, a system that will finally take out all the ambiguity, something I could trust. But if you're not willing to live in the liquid universe, you'll never find an ability to um, be at peace in those conditions. So uh, it's hard to see that even on week-long retreats, that people still like, oh, I could take refuge if my mind were always like this, that 
the seventh day of a nine-day retreat where you're finally at peace. It's like, ah, if I could just hold on to this, I'd come for a one-month retreat so I could grab on to this uh, mind state. And that may get you in the door, but you realize I can't actually stabilize that. I can't get a hold on that. And so you end up developing another kind of wisdom which really isn't your first choice, but it's the real liberating (laughs) wisdom, which is, I seem to be failing at Buddhism because it's supposed to be about eternal peace, but I'll take the secondary prize, which is not to keep suffering over my deficiency of things constantly changing. Everybody else looks like they've crossed a threshold into peacefulness, not my experience but I'm not gonna add suffering to my deficiency. So we keep B-rating ourselves, and every now and then I say, it's, you should be A-rating yourself, because that's actually the dawning of liberative wisdom, is that no, you can't actually grab a hold of changing condition, conditions and concretize them. You can't actually solidify the waterfall. There's no, that strategy keeps backfiring. And it will take, it takes a lot of intimacy to see it, and then it takes a whole bunch of time to come to terms with it. And that's really what it can take a lifetime to do, is to come to terms with how liquid the universe is, and to grow comfortable with that truth, and not suffer over it. And then something else arises that doesn't suffer over the liquidity of the universe. You actually take refuge in that liquidity. You take refuge in the changing nature. And so what was uh, confounding your security because everything was changeable becomes the very basis of your well-being because you are liquid, you're part of the stream. And as that becomes more your, uh, how you intuitively conceive of yourself, there's less possibility to add suffering to the mix. So this ever-changing nature from a conventional view, we're trying to build the perfect, um, like the three little pigs and the wolf. We're trying to build a better house that the wind, that the wolf's breath can't blow down. And yet it keeps happening. But if you're willing to be in the stream, which you should be willing to be in the stream because you actually are in the stream, so at least be willing, but then you find uh, the stream is actually very light. The stream is actually very peaceful. It has visitations of difficulties for sure. But because those difficulties are also streaming of nature, they also don't become permanent. And it's just, can I breathe in the middle of what's challenging? A few years ago, I was flipping through YouTube. I was streaming. (laughs) And uh, I was trying to get into um, uh, scuba diving. It's something I just tried, but it's a very amazing experience to actually go deep underwater and float weightlessly and then see these little fish come up and look at you and swim away. And Up here, the animals are afraid of you. 
But down in the ocean, you can get quite, you can be in the middle of very small fish and they're not intrinsically afraid of you. I'm not totally sure why that is. But it's just a different experience of being in this ocean and kind of just being a part of it, not being outside of it looking. And so I opened this uh, video up of this aquarium in Georgia. And it's such a large aquarium, it's like two football fields of water and then like two football fields of filters purifying the water. And then this natural harmony, the, the fish have so much space that they go into a kind of a natural peacefulness. Whereas if they had less space, there'd be more intrinsic anxiety, but you give them more space and they start to school, they start to swim by. Uh, there are sharks, there are turtles, all different kinds of fish. And I was looking at that, this insight arose. I mean, it can arise anywhere. Uh, so it doesn't arise when you want it to, but this insight arose, it's like that aquarium is what it feels like to have practiced a long time that I, I don't care what fish goes through, I just want to know I have the space for it. And if given enough space, the sharks go by, the little fish go by, this whale shark goes by, stingrays go by. It's like, yeah, not, if the tank is large enough, if the water's clear enough, any event can happen. And it's not dependent upon the event, it's the purity of heart and the size of heart. And so that's become sort of like a, a guiding metaphor for me. How's the purity of my heart? How's the clarity and spaciousness of my heart? And not struggling so much over the content. So you'll, you'll hear this, it's not, it's not the content, it's our relationship to it. And it's the quality of heart and mind that are present. But what you don't see in that video is the size of the filters that are needed to purify that much water. So there's two football fields of tank, but there's also two football fields of filters constantly taking the water in and that much water, making sure it's cleaning it so the fish get to live in clean water. So we are actually developing systems inside of us that purify, that take old habits, and that muddy our mind, that fragment our mind, that harm our mind and keep our mind agitated and you get these filters running. And at first they're very intentional, but then they also become second nature, and then they're running in the background. So sila, this ethical attunement, is a filter. And at first when you apply sila, there are all these things your heart wants to do that are greedy and harmful and just old bad cultural habits. And you put it through this filter of sila. It's like, no, I'm not going to steal. I'm not going to speak harshly. I'm not going to harm. And then you see that your heart wants to do this for its own satisfaction, its own safety, its own selfishness. And once sila gets running, you feel this purity arise in your heart and mind. And what first took effort then becomes a, a very strong intuitive choice that you want to filter out of your heart. Uh, harming intentions. We have the practice of samadhi, which helps calm the mind and starts to filter all the, the ways our minds have been scattered and agitated and exhausted. And we're calming all those habits down, filtering them out, 
so that our heart can do something simple. And at first that takes training, but then that filter um, so reinforces the use of it that it's a part of your happiness. That's why you don't suffer as much as you have this filter of samadhi that's not taking the bait of all this fragmenting activity. And then the, the, there, every Buddhist training and teaching could be seen as a filter, but you can look at these three large filters, which are really the three trainings. The third big filter is, is filtering with wisdom, fil- uh, filtering our view so that it's not cloudy, that it's not selfish, that it's not confused. And first you have to apply it, and then at some point it's part of why your heart doesn't suffer, and so you appreciate the, the wisdom view, that things are impermanent, that permanent things can't be satisfying, that it's better to have a heart that accepts the visitation of painful experiences than to keep plotting and scheming uh, to have a heart that doesn't have painful experiences. As much as I've been submerged in this practice, because I live conventionally, it's easy to go back to those conventions, but they're not deeply rooted. But it is astounding that this mind, given all the work it's done, if I look back over every year I've lived, there have been major difficulties and yet I plan two years ahead as a Dharma teacher and I never plan in difficulties. <laughs> so I, yeah, I'll do this, that'll be fun, I can go see that friend, da, 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 I'm looking through the year. And I just don't really plan that there are gonna be major difficulties. So they're always a bit of a shock when they come. And yet after 52 years of experience, I've never lived a year, let alone, I mean, I've never lived a month, a week without something challenging. But it always surprises me a little bit, like, what, again? It's like, yeah. But I catch it quicker, it's like, oh, filter out this view. You were living in a dream, and it's better to filter that out, especially if it starts to concretize that there's a scheme, that there's all happiness. My friends got into this, like, Bitcoin spike, and they wanted me to get on the Bitcoin spike, and imagine being a billionaire within a week, oh my god. And then they lost so much when it crashed. And they was like, I, I had like, the, I, I could have opted out, but there was like, this might go higher, this might go higher. It's like, yeah, it's a dangerous ride. But <laughs> the hook was so tempting to go on that ride. So you have to filter out your view. It's not just calming your heart down, but then you have to see what are the operating views. And the beautiful thing about this is that we're just just waking up to the truth. It's not a whole philosophy. I'm not trying to teach you uh, abstract, very complex calculus, which is, you know, it it is very complicated theory to apply. We're just developing intimacy with how things are. And through intimacy, the world teaches you everything you need to know. But you have to be courageous enough to be intimate and courageous enough to let go of old views when they really don't align with the truth and then the courage to live by that truth even when there are shortcuts uh, back to old habits. I was a scientist when I was younger and I grew up in a a scientific household. 
And there's so much of what I was trained to, to possibly go into a life of science and what that meant, what the, the rigor of science was. But what I appreciated about it is that there is this incredible ethos to keep checking what your assumptions are because it might be blocking greater intimacy with what's true. But everybody falls in love with their model. And then everybody feels the, the excitement that they understand it. And then you get addicted and framed by your view. And it's only a model. So courageous people who live at the forefront of research never have the security of really being confident in their view. They have ideas. My stepfather is a neuroscientist and he did a lot of research. I think I've mentioned this, my mom's a professor. So to her, she'll say things with a lot of confidence. And then I turn to him and it's like, is that true? And he's like, well, you know, some people have this opinion. There's a kind of a data set that kind of look, leans in that direction. <laughs> But because he's doing actual research, he is plagued by the reality of what's actually known. And because my mom's a professor, she gets to live in the confidence of, we, oh, we've totally figured this out. I've known her long enough to see things that she was confident in are no longer the case, but at the time, it was already known. And so it's interesting how we get uh, into these views and like the comfort of our views. But reality is so much more intricate and dynamic uh, than we'll ever have opinion for. But we actually can come into great intimacy with how things are. Some of you, and myself included, so some of us, um, sometimes Ajahn Chah this woman once came and asked Ajahn Chah all these complicated intellectual questions. And she said, and he said, you're like someone who wanders behind the chicken, ignoring the eggs and picking up the shit. <laughs> <laughs> and she was deeply insulted. Um, and I have a Buddhist shit tracking excitement when I get this intellectual aha and then I start to try to practice from the the model versus letting the model guide a deeper intimate experience and so that's what we are keep welcoming you into it's so much more mysterious and it's unnervingly mysterious until you get comfortable with how liquid everything is and that intuitive comfort is liberating but looking for a model that you can grab onto ends up not being so helpful. So these talks give models, but hopefully the models don't block your intimacy. They support your courage to try every day to let go of yesterday and start fresh. What is a breath? Do you already know what a breath is? You've killed all tomorrow's breaths if you've already known what breathing is. So it's helpful that we are building an intimacy with the breath, but never know it so, clear, so clearly or so confidently that you don't need to freshly explore another breath.
There's another uh, example that was helpful for me earlier in practice. What are we submerged in that we don't know we're submerged in? Like, what is it that we're not seeing? We're in this liquid universe, but we are filtering, and we don't know that we're filtering. So you all are filtering English right now. That's why this is the concepts are arising in your mind from these sounds I'm making. If I were speaking in Burmese, you could probably see my emotional affect, but it wouldn't, it wouldn't cause concepts to arise in your mind because you have an effortless English filter happening. You cannot actually go back to not hearing the English I'm speaking. Once it becomes second nature, it only gets stronger. So you're going to hear English, and you can't really stop that filter. Nor should you. I mean, English is helpful if you're English-speaking with other people. But we have a permanence filter, and it's part of how we find ease. But that permanence filter doesn't really land on reality. So, you know, this bell is like the bell that I've seen for many years. And if I walked in here and it wasn't here, it would be like, where did it go? So it's not so impermanent that it's never here, but it's not so permanent that it's guaranteed to be here or that it's not changing over time. So this belief in permanence works well enough and then we start filtering and expecting the world to map on to how we're filtering, and then we are frustrated when the world is not like how we've grown attached to it. With greater intimacy and a willingness not to keep trying to make the world permanent, which takes some wisdom to not just keep running the old perspective no matter what intimacy tells you, but deepen your intimacy and do the experiment. How liquid is the universe? How unpredictable? It's not completely unpredictable, but it surely is never totally predictable. And in that, there is some uncertainty. Intimacy will show you that. That's not an opinion. There were a lot of opinions about whether the Earth uh, was at the center of all things and the sky spun around us, which is intuitively very easy to access. There were some doubts whether that was true. But when Galileo first heightened the intimacy with a telescope to look at the planets. Through that intimacy, it was no longer an opinion. It was direct evidence of how the planets worked, that Jupiter had its own moons, that Venus wasn't a perfect dot. It had phases like the moon. The moon had textures. And he was willing to start modeling what the solar system was like from greatly heightened intimacy. And once that intimacy takes, it's not an opinion, it just gets more confirmed because you're on the right track. And now we have moon buggies, solar panel, solar powered moon buggies, I guess they're Mars buggies, uh, going around the surface of Mars because that model is built out of so much intimacy that we can actually navigate uh, these devices onto the surface of Mars. But if you don't have the right model, you can't do that. So there's a confirmation that your intimacy is on the right track. 
uh, when it begins to map on to how things actually are. I was just in Sri Lanka um, doing a pilgrimage uh, to, it was so much when I got there, but as I was going there, I really wanted to pay homage to uh, the country that had held this Theravadan tradition for so long. And if they hadn't held it, if any generation had broke, had gotten distracted, didn't want to do the work, um, there were civil wars, there were incredible hardships that that country endured for thousands of years, but they held true to this teaching. And because they held true, I get to feel the benefit of it. So I wanted to go to Sri Lanka and see what paying respects to the country was like and just feel that gratitude. But one thing that happened in Sri Lanka that's happened every time you're on a western-facing coast is you can watch a sunset. So just like Galileo changing perspective, it looks so much like the sun is the one that's moving. And that conventionally makes sense. We all talk about sunsets. But there's something you can do, and I keep doing this because it keeps blowing my mind, is I put my hand out like this, and it's like either the sun is setting or we're on a big ball, and it's rolling. The sun is steady. Oh my God. (laughs) It's like that's such a mind blow. But in one view, you just keep looking over. It's like the sun's a little lower, sun's a little lower. That's conventional. But if you, when it gets close to the horizon, you can actually see it diminishing as it gets smaller. And in that, you can just change the filter, change the view. It's like, this is a measurement of this big ball rolling and the sun is stationary and there's a flash where you get it. Like, not just get it, but you're like, oh my God. (laughs) I totally can feel it world is rolling. Ah, oh, I'm on a rolling earth. So you've been there over and over and over and over, but this filter that I'm on this big steady thing and the other thing looks like it's moving, you don't know how to even question that. But when you actually open up to a different view, then it, you open up to this thing, wow, that, that's we're not on something stable. We're on a spinning ball. It feels stable, but it actually is in constant motion. And that's why we roll through the stars every night and we roll through sunlight. We're constantly rolling. Can you feel that? Like how, (laughs) whoa, that's why you can't get your life together. (laughs) You're on a spinning ball for crying out loud. So we're actually in the stream and we're waking up to the stream. But two things go against us. One, we're not intimate enough to notice the hour hand moving. So it looks like the hour hand is stable. Second hand moves, but it looks like part of the clock is stable. It's just changing so slow we can't perceive it. So one, we need to deepen intimacy. And two, we already have these filters running that we haven't examined that things are permanent, that things are reliably satisfying, and that there's a lasting self going through this timeline. That's what it feels like conventionally. And then we interpret things through that filter, and then we get frustrated, but we don't know it's actually the filter, the filter of perception. 
So as we start practicing the, the Buddha's teachings, at first they're counterintuitive. I mean, there might be a slight intuition to even have you walk in the door and try it out. But again, to imagine that so many of my problems would be affected by feeling the breath more distinctly. And I spent a year in Burma feeling the breath and it kept getting more intimate. But at some point I was like, is this really going to be a part of how I come out of this crazy mind and deal with my crazy family and deal with the crazy world? And is this really gonna help me make sense of things? But trusting my teachers enough, trusting the building sense of my own intuition, I was willing to go a little further out, a little further out. But it was counterintuitive that somehow breathing mindfully was going to transform a lot of my confusions. But it did. And so that becomes a filter that first takes work. And now it's so validating that if I'm not with my breath, I'm not doing well. I mean, I, I do work and I do, it's like a, the breath and I go for a walk and sometimes we have a tether. But if I come untethered from my body, it never ends up good. I always end up kind of confused and overextended and having a sugar crash. So it's really good to actually live in this thing, not to live above it. Um, that took work. And then after a while it was so validating that now it's part of how I filter my experience is making sure that some part of my awareness is aware that I have legs and that I don't go too long without making sure, oh yeah, I have legs, right? The longer I go without knowing I have legs, the worse my life becomes. That's, I've proven that to myself. So knowing that I have legs actually, not just knowing it, but actually feeling them has worked. It's brought a lot of sanity to my life, a lot of well-being. So it's like uh, if you had these two football fields of uh, this tank in, a, in Georgia, and you didn't have the filters, the water would become cloudy, the water would become grimy, and all the fish would begin to suffer. And no matter how much you try to treat each individual fish, the conditions are not being filtered well. So because of that, there's, a, there's an illness that you can't um, solve by solving individual problems. You don't have these filtering systems going, but if you have SELA as a filter, and you commit to it and radically commit to it because it goes against the grain of some conventional thinking. When you live in the ordinary world, people do believe that if I shout and get my way, that's better for me. So then people are not totally clear that raging is not a good practice, but that you can live for decades and still believe that my angry speech puts me in a place of power and empowerment. So you're with all these people who have a lot of mixed views and then you can kind of doubt your own perspective, but at some point you radically commit to the five precepts or to a heart that loves to be ethical. And it takes some countering from the ordinary world and at some point it becomes intrinsic and you can't be pushed off into bad behavior. And you feel the, the sickness that comes immediately from going out of sila. 
to start harboring hatred, to start harboring greed. Uh, you if you want to solve it quickly because you actually feel your own heart becoming unfiltered. You can feel the grime arising. That takes work and training, but at some point it becomes just like you're hearing English now. It's not something you can turn off or would want to turn off. The same with now having spent weeks of practice, one by one, people are like, please God, not another thought. Please, please. Like, I don't even need, like, awesome meditative states. I just am getting so tired of thinking. It's like, that's so great, because now you're willing to filter thinking, whereas out in daily life, it's like, it just, like, two uh, fire hoses just blasting you from every direction. And you don't have an intrinsic filter. You start to try to sort them out. It's like, I'm not, you can't sort them out. There are way too many. Better to actually quiet what can be quieted and hang out my body. I don't have a lot of these chaotic experiences. My body can be chaotic, but it's not as confusing as thoughts can get. And then this view, which is counterintuitive, until intimacy and uh, practice starts to make it second nature. And now I can see myself setting myself up for suffering by imagining things are ownable or controllable. Every year of my life, I've, <clears throat> I've uh, not every year, but for many years, I did a lot of moving. And what I noticed was that it was very hard to move the longer I lived somewhere. And I was like, how does that happen? So one time when I moved into a house, I was like, I'm going to watch this. Kind of, where do I take the bait? And so the first day I moved into the house, I still had all my boxes, half the stuff was still boxed. I was like, yeah, I could move out easy. So this is not hard. Then there comes a point where you unbox everything. It takes some work to get things back in boxes. I was like, ah, I've just sort of liked and hoped that I could stay here because I don't want to do the work of moving. Then there's the time where you get rid of the boxes. Now you have to get boxes in order to move. So you start buying in to like, I, I want to stay here. And then you change your checks, you change your driver's license. You start knowing how to live in a new house. And it's like, yeah, it's not perfect, but it's really comfortable. So I thought I was doing good Dharma work to make sure I wasn't getting overly attached to this house I lived in. And then the landlord called me one day and said, um... I have a chance for somebody to buy the house. I really need this for my own finances, so just wanted to give you a heads up. And this earthquake went through me. And what I, my mind wanted to do was really unwholesome in a lot of ways. <laughs> One, I wanted, like, how do I fight this? And then, how could this not be true? Could I desperately buy the house? Like, everything was trying to preserve my relationship to the house, but I had done enough Dharma training that this filter kicked in and said, you need to filter much deeper than these strategies. And I looked in and I was like, where did my inflexibility come? And it came in slowly through these little movements to where I wanted a future with this house and I had coalesced around it. As soon as I began to filter through that, and it took a couple of days, but I was filtering through, it's like, yeah, 
every house is transient, whether it's 30 years, 50 years, one month. It always has been transient. I'm always a guest. And then it's settled. And as soon as it's settled, all these uh, agitating um, habits came out. I mean, they all kind of dissipated. And then I was like, I'm in a fluid relationship with this house. And I called the landlady and I said, um, if you need to sell it, of course. Um, but just to let you know, uh, we've really fallen in love with being here. So, uh, of course, we would move if you wanted to. And she said, oh, you love living there. I didn't know. I'm so anxious renting from afar. I thought I had to sell it, but so much easier if you want to live there. I just didn't know you wanted to live there. And that definitely wouldn't have happened if I had called her, trying to manipulate her into a yes. I got this beautiful yes. We had a really good relationship after that. So then it was validating to have this sense that I'm a guest in this house. I'm a guest in this body. I'm a guest in this moment. Don't try to own it. It's actually more secure to be in the stream to be of the stream, then try to come out of the stream and cling. So in that note about purification, there's something you can track and it's very useful. It's right in the Buddha's teachings. There's this teaching of dependent origination. You don't need all of it. It's all, it's all very intricate. But there's a moment where your mind goes towards clinging. And in that moment, it feels like that is a benevolent thing, that that's good for you. You're looking for security. So you have days full of hindrances and due to mindfulness, that's totally legit. It's just conditions. It's just what the stream is like. You're not a bad practitioner. It's just, wow, there's a lot of rain. Not that you did anything wrong. There's just a lot of rain. You're having a lot of sleepiness. It may not have a cause. Why don't you try accepting sleepiness on this scale or restlessness? But you practice, you accept it, and then things improve. Who knows why they improve? But they do improve. And then you begin to try to coalesce around that. It's like, what? how do I prolong this? Now that I'm here, don't get sleepy again. Make sure you don't eat these things. And some of those can be you tending the stream, but it's very different when you're trying to actually solidify meditative states. We all do it. You all do it. If you were ever going to cling to anything, you would cling to beautiful meditative states. There's so much more fulfilling than any vacation, any sense or experience, because it's actually penetrating inside the well-being that comes from meditative states. Those of you who haven't had one in a while, <laughs> you're probably going like, yeah. that's you clinging to the hope of them. <laughs> but there is another type of well-being that takes a long time to mature. And it's just like, I enjoy the sun when it's here, but I never try to pitch a tent there. I don't try to own it. I don't try to solidify it. 
it rolls in by its own conditioning, it rolls out by its own conditioning, and then something else rolls in, and you become a streamer, you become someone who streams, and you're not looking for anything particular, it's the whole attitude of streaming that it takes a while for that filter to kick in, but when that kicks in, you, you really cannot suffer. You can have unpleasant experiences, but all suffering on some level is a resistance to streaming. All suffering somewhere in your suffering, on some layer, not the unpleasantness, but the distress around what's happening has to pass through clinging. There has to be clinging. So, because I actually don't like suffering, I like to be very efficient when I'm suffering to find the actual solution. I'm not very good at suffering. I don't like it. So, now that I know what to do, when I'm suffering, as quickly as possible, I look for what part of me is not adaptable. And I might think, I'm totally adaptable. It's like, you wouldn't suffer if you were totally adaptable. So look for it. And sometimes it's this weird thing where you have like a bowl made of ice, but there's warm water right in the middle, and that's your subjective experience. And you're, you're in this rigid mind, but your subjective experience is like, I'm totally flexible. I'm totally flexible. I'm totally streaming. And then you look at your body language. is like, what? I'm relaxed. And it's like, oh, I'm not relaxed. Oh, there is so much resistance. Uh, it's so unpleasant. But I'm actually thawing this unconscious icing, this unconscious rigidifying. When we go full into clinging, it can so define us that we don't even know we're clinging when we're clinging. It's like, again, being that warm water in an ice bowl, and subjectively we think that we're being adaptable, but there's things we are totally not willing to face. And then reality, because it's a river, it changes, and you feel the stress of the changeability. So I'm going through this now with my parents as they age and for a long time, I intellectually knew their aging would mean their coming end. But I must admit, I really appreciated their aging because it made them wiser. And so they got a little grayer in the hair, some age spots came, but every visit they were more emotionally uh, intelligent. So I was like, this aging process is not so bad. But intellectually, I know that this is going to a place where there will be pain. And now my parents are starting to cross over. And I wouldn't have known where to look, where I was clinging. I mean, I kind of knew I was probably clinging, but like, where is it? Where is it? It's actually when stress arises that you now know where you're clinging. So rather than too quickly solving the stress, which keeps you clinging, you turn towards the mind, body, and stress. And it shows you, ah, I can see now. I am not actually adaptable. I'm not in the stream of reality. This is, I can't be in this. But finally I know where I'm holding. I'm not sure if this is making sense, but 
it's a very visceral experience to watch myself resist my parents' aging. But 10 years ago, it was kind of a free-floating truth that I didn't know how to mature other than to know that it was true. So sometimes you actually have to suffer to expose your clinging and then you work in that clinging field to thaw it, to come to terms with it, to see what you're resisting. And it's different to resist something intellectually but still emotionally be clinging or to accept something intellectually but still unawarely be clinging. So when you start to suffer, I start looking for that non-adaptability and then I can find it. The suffering actually shows me the non-adaptability. It shows me my clinging. And then I do the hard work of thawing it. And how do you thaw it? You bring attention to it. You don't resist the resistance because that's usually just adding ice to ice. You actually have to acknowledge it's there. You do rain. You recognize it and accept it. Recognize and accept it. It's really uncomfortable. It's not how you want things to go. The mind is really protesting. But this is how things are. It is like this. It is like this. And then there comes a point where the clinging begins to soften. And you can feel why you clung to begin with. You were looking for security. You were looking for something predictable. You were trying to position yourself in all this fluctuation in some way that you wouldn't be so vulnerable. You thaw that, it may take time, and then the thawing of it, you come back into a sense of streaming, and now you actually can stream with how things are. I can stream now with my parents' aging because I've suffered, and the suffering showed me where I was clinging. And until I suffered, I wouldn't have really known where to look. This comes up to um, another note that was left about uh, the meeting of these Eastern traditions with um, a deep wisdom that's emerging from the West about trauma and somatic-based patterning. And so before I was aware of my body through this lens of um, uh, traumatic patterning, I looked at it kind of like I was looking through a microscope I was up here and I was looking at my body like I was maybe looking at a car. It was not me, it was something I was studying. As I started doing uh, the somatic-based intelligence and getting trained in that and doing it, I saw there were all these bracing patterns. So every time your mind clings, there is an echo where your body stiffens. But it happens so unconsciously that we're not aware of it. But our body has layers of patterning in it. Every time the mind wants permanence and um, security, it gets rigid. And then some part of your body agrees. It's a very loyal dog. The body's a loyal dog. So if you're scared, it's scared. If you want stiffness, it gets stiff. So part of the purification process is we can understand things quickly intellectually and then it comes down to be more intuitive but there comes a point where you're thawing your mind and you'll have to start thawing your body and the imprints that that made in your body 
if you bring attention, loving, kind, patient attention to your body, you start thawing your body, and that actually starts thawing the mind that made your body stiff and rigid or feeling numb. So either direction you come at it, as the mind opens up, the internal experience of the body becomes more fluid. As you spend more time in loving, mindful patience inside the body and waking up your experience of it, you can't also be holding to the mind. As the body is known, you end up letting go in the mind. This happens on such a deep level that most of it you won't really be subjectively aware of. You'll just be scanning your body, scanning your mind. Your mind will open some. You're like, oh, nice, my mind's more open. It actually was all that time that you were breathing in the middle of difficulties that you were starting to not resist or go into an old pattern, but open up intimacy and mindfulness as a new possibility, and that ends up thawing your system. We all know such peace. (laughs) Where we have had the most intense fear, we have the greatest holding in our body. And we end up being resentful of that part of our body because when it starts to speak to us, it speaks of the pain it's going through by holding the tension. And that unfortunately locks in, my mind doesn't like this sensation in the body and I want to fix it. But there's times when you can actually start to soften around that there is pain. That area will soften over time and it will release what it's holding. And the releasing what it's holding is at least happening on the somatic level where you'll feel uh, things go from numb to actively painful to where they take up a little more space but they're becoming less dense to where they may take up more space but they start to throb and then they start spreading out and they start releasing what they've been holding. That's a common trajectory. If that happens slowly enough, all you'll feel is that your body feels a little tingly but there can be points where you will come across big pockets of pain in your body. You can only discover them meditatively because only that takes them out of unconsciousness and lets you know them. And then this whole transformation process where at first you resent it, then you begrudgingly can't do anything about it, then you're willing to coexist with it, and then it starts opening because your attitude is no longer averse. And as you begin to have it open, more empathy shows up. Wow, this body's been holding a lot of pain for a lot of time. I had one of these not show up on my first long retreat. I was well into it and I would kind of let go a lot of um, just sort of daily patterns. So I was starting to feel my first body settling, my mind was settling, and I let go of some very simple things, uh, profound to me at the time. but. And then in the middle of that, um, first settling, I think I told you that there were some other experiences in my body that were painful and I worked through those. But then 
in the middle of one sit, it felt like someone had shot me with an old musket ball. And it came suddenly, and there was this hot, dense, lead ball in the back of my leg. And my first thought was, you know, ow. (laughs) But I was like, I hate this, what is that? And then I tried to meditate my way through it. I tried to get to the core so I could deconstruct it. And it kept exhausting me. And I was luckily working with a teacher who had gone through similar experiences. And I think more people are aware now that the body can hold a lot of tension unconsciously for a long time. So then I started begrudgingly tolerating it because it wouldn't go away. And then through that softening around it, at least accepting it to some degree, it started opening up. And I trust, I, I tell you this is good news, but I'm still working on it 25 years later. That's a shift in perspective. I, if I'd known it was going to take 25 years, I would have been demoralized. But now that I know I have so much respect for this part of my body and how much of my childhood tension this noble part of my body stepped forward and kept taking the excess that was above my psychological pay grade and say, I will hold this until you're ready. I will hold this until you're ready. I'll hold this until you're ready. So I resented it when it first said, now you're ready. And I was like, ah, you're, just, you're nothing but bad news. And it's like, you're ready. You can hear me. You can listen. And I could shift my perspective, starting to get more of this Western somatic intelligence, rather than what was a kind of a Burmese coaching, to get in there and not let it defeat you, you could process it. I was also, you know, hearing that through translators, and it was, uh, you know, I, I know that there is more wisdom than I had access to, but it did reinforce a fighting attitude And what I learned, uh, and what our community is learning, is sometimes you have to peacefully coexist and breathe with these experiences. And that's a shift in attitude. And that's what allows the space for the body to start letting go of its pain. And you start to not resent it, but realize it's not the body that's that's the fault. It's an amazing, it's an amazing animal. And it knows how to hold things so that you can psychically, psychologically survive unbearable stresses and at least get through. And it'll hold it for decades. That's how loyal it is. Yes, it aches. Yes, it starts to show distress. Yes, it can start to show illness because it wasn't meant to hold things for that long. But it's not a weakness in your body. It's actually a very strong part of your body letting your psyche grow to where you can psychologically handle reality. Entering the stream sounds great, but in the stream, there's very intense experiences. They're transient, but they're very intense. So as people are becoming more intimate, a lot of our job is to reflect back. This is actually all good. And often what's needed is a lot more intimacy and acceptance of what's actually arising. So again, like that image of the needle, 
resting uh, truthfully, honestly in the groove, and it just vibrates depending on what the phenomena is underneath it. And out of that comes symphonies or the blues or classical music or rock and roll, whatever, it comes out. But the needle is just resting and vibrating without a preference over what it's resting in. And that's what allows it to um, express such a great range. We want our mindfulness to rest, to be of the stream, to rest in the stream. So for mindfulness sakes, it doesn't really matter what you're knowing. It just, can you accept it? And can you be intimate in the middle of whatever is occurring? It is also helpful to develop other parts of the path. It's not just mindfulness. There is the cultivation of steadiness. There is the cultivation of samadhi. There is the cultivation of sila. Those are other filters. But what's radical about Buddhism is that it trusts the intimacy that's possible and the waking up just through greater intimacy with how things actually are. In that intimacy, we'll have to thaw old holding patterns, which were from a conventional view, that bracing, resisting, trying to find the security of living on land while you're actually submerged in a river. That takes a thawing of what has been printed in us through many years of conventional living. And this is what you're all going through whether it has become overt or whether it's subtly humming in the background. It's why you can feel more into your body is that you've thawed this uh, disregard of the body or that the body should just be a static thing that you move around in. It's a living animal, you should respect it. You're in it, it deserves love, it deserves appreciation for its strengths and its vulnerabilities come into your body with that attitude of patient, loving interest. It breathes, it's willing to, you like the food you eat, it's willing to turn that into energy and cells and blood and hair. Like you get the entertainment of eating and it does all the work of keeping you alive. You could be more respectful. (laughs) And not so grumpy about this body mindfulness and loving kindness will have you come in. And then when there are areas of pain, we tend to resent it, but that tends to keep the pain locked in. The mind is tense in relationship to the pain, that tension keeps the pain tense. And the nice thing about the body is so honest that if you're falsely accepting its pain to get rid of the goddamn pain, the body knows what that's like. And it's like, yeah, you're not really loving me. This is pure manipulation. (laughs) And it will wear you down until you authentically say, I will peacefully coexist with you for reals. Like it's just, I can't, I can't make you otherwise. So let's peacefully coexist. You are a mixture of pleasure, pain, and some neutrality. That's good enough for me. And then the body begins to thaw because that attitude is a thawing mind. As the mind thaws and the body thaws, uh, streaming is much more possible. And then that's how we become of the stream as we thaw all this clinging and all the habits that grow out of this clinging. And clinging is just conventional view, it's conventional strategies. 
and what's so radical about being on a retreat is not adopting a whole other philosophy, but supporting yourself with a philosophy that deepens your actual intimacy and then being willing to live in that level of intimacy. Another type of well-being is born and it's a much more trustworthy and even finally liberating well-being. So with that said, let us sit quietly for a moment. Your body is a stream, your mind is a stream, your internal world is a stream, your outside world is a stream. If there is suffering, some component of it is clinging, resisting, controlling, That's where we want to soften, that's what we want to thaw. And we want to ever increase our trust in this streaming nature. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.